This is KJZZ, your news and information station in Phoenix and across Arizona. I'm Jill Ryan. Here are the week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of January 29th, 2024. The homeless population of the Phoenix area has grown about 50% in five years. One of the ways officials track the growth is to conduct an on-the-ground survey each January. KJZZ's Catherine Davis-Young joined this year's count. It's 6 a.m. and rain is coming down hard as teams from the city of Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions split up to search for unsheltered people. It's hard to see on this dark, wet morning, but Annette Medina is keeping an eye out from the passenger window of a city car. A lot of the places that we're looking at are any little coves or bus stops. When the team does spot someone, it's often hard to convince them to talk, especially in this rain. Stephanie Greenleaf, a homeless liaison for the city, hops out from the driver's seat to check a tent pitched near a vacant lot on Camelback Road. But the person inside won't answer questions. Well, it looked like that person had just used drugs. The car stops at a city park and at storefronts where people are taking shelter. When people won't talk, the outreach workers just note their observations in a smartphone app. A man in his 50s sleeping at a bus stop. A pair of young women standing on a side street in an area known for sex trafficking. Then is this person homeless? Definitely, possibly not sure. Then the team pulls up to a taco shop where nine people and two dogs are huddled in the doorway. The awning is dripping. There are big puddles forming in the parking lot. One man has tried to squeeze into a shopping cart to sleep. An older woman tries to cover her legs with a small blanket. But we're out doing a survey this morning for folks out on the street. A few people agreed to participate. This lady told me that she has some mental health concerns and she's recently diagnosed with cancer. She's gone to shelter before but wasn't happy with it. The team provides a list of resources and encourages her to seek support. These point-in-time counts each January are required by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Most cities nationwide participate in order to be eligible for federal funding to address homelessness. In the Phoenix area, the counts have revealed a dramatic increase in homelessness over the past decade. As a result, the counts have become more complicated and also more critical. The logistics are challenging. You know, we're talking about nearly 10,000 people in the space of six hours. Brian Gruders is a human services planner with the Maricopa Association of Governments. He helps coordinate with cities and nonprofit partners across the county to compile the data collected during the annual count. He says last year, only about 40% of people who were counted answered survey questions. He hopes to see that number increase this year. But the total number of people observed each year is also almost certainly an undercount, says Richard Cruz with the human services nonprofit Keys to Change. We're working with a population that's good at not being counted, that's good at existing in as a means of survival in the cracks and crevices of society. Even with hundreds of volunteers, the count doesn't reach every corner of every block, and organizers have no way of counting people living in their cars or couch surfing. But fanning out across the region to make observations allows organizers to pinpoint exactly where people experiencing homelessness are. Gruder says for him, 
am, that's one of the clearest ways to understand the massive scale of the issue. You can see it on the map. There are green dots for every person that we counted, and they're from east to west, north to south. And that consistent snapshot from the same time each year, paired with other data, starts to show some very clear trends. In the 10 years Stephanie Greenleaf has been participating, the number of unsheltered people tallied on the streets of Maricopa County during the point-in-time count has more than tripled. When I started, you really had to look for folks. Like you had to you know, like have a flashlight and be on the lookout and everything. Now, she says homelessness has become much more visible in Phoenix, and doing outreach like this, she's hearing from more and more people struggling to make ends meet. Rent goes up and their benefits don't go up at the same rate, or even people that are working like a minimum wage job, that's not enough money to afford a place. Final data from this year's point-in-time count will be released in the spring. It will likely show trends continuing in the wrong direction. Driving back after another day recording these first-hand observations, Greenleaf says... It's frustrating because more needs to be done. Whatever this year's report shows, she says she just hopes lawmakers will take notice. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, a new pilot program in Phoenix is increasing public access to chilled drinking water. KJZZ's Christina Estes reports on two fountain prototypes recently installed downtown. Just off Washington Street near 3rd Avenue in Cesar Chavez Plaza is a bright blue water fountain. On each side you can get a drink. In the middle you can fill a bottle. Bob Murdoch's company designed and built it. We don't have a lot of bells and whistles on them. They're all push button operated. Uh, there's no sensor operation. There's no batteries to replace. There's no chance of, you know, uh, corrosion and anything in the way of electronics. The most critical piece of the $7,500 prototype is a chiller located inside the column. You have to have adequate ventilation inside the column and making sure that you have a good inflow and you have a good outflow. We've designed in and out passages for the, you know, for the air to move in and out without any obstructions of any kind. The bright blue fountain has a powder coating to reduce heat. While just across the street, a brushed steel fountain only has coating on the dispenser buttons, at least for now. It's in an area that's more shaded regularly from the building, but we're going to be watching all of this. Michael Hammett leads Phoenix's Office of Innovation. These are the first two units. We wanted to get them modified, up and running, tested, see how folks are using them. He said the locations were chosen because they're near public transit and public buildings and have a history of heat-related emergency calls. We have received complaints over the years from moms, from residents, from visitors that the water might be as hot as the air in the summertime. Both fountains are in Councilwoman Yasmin Ansari's district. For us, this is imperative because access to cold, clean drinking water has been sorely needed and I think far too long overlooked in Phoenix. Our public water fountains, whether they're in our parks, in our public facilities, um, and here outside City Hall, have far too long been merely an empty gesture, especially in the hot summer months. Restaurants often find themselves providing water to those in need. Teddy Myers owns Chico Malo at Cityscape. If they're clearly suffering from heat exhaustion or need water, we're humans. We're going to give them water, but it's just not a sustainable practice. Hello, this is Chico Malo. As downtown attracts more students, workers, and visitors, 
The time and expense in handing out cups of water can not only slow operations, but potentially hurt sales. To have a front door full of homeless people asking for water while also trying to help our guests, it would be unsustainable because they're not, that's not the first impression you want for guests coming in for a high-end uh, experience. Ambassadors for Downtown Phoenix, Inc., which provide services to businesses, including hospitality and homeless outreach, are letting people know about the new fountains. Daphne Marley with the group says they'll also keep eyes on them. And they will help to ensure that every day these water stations are clean, they're well-maintained, and they feel welcoming to those who want to use them. As city leaders announce the pilot program, Art Kuros tried a fountain. I think it was fabulous. I can drink it. But the true test will come this summer, as manufacturer Bob Murdoch knows. Well, I think Phoenix is going to be a challenge. I think many cities in the Sun Belt are going to be a, a greater challenge as time goes on with global warming. And we can back up and go a different direction if something doesn't work out correctly. We can redesign the enclosure. Uh, we can up the size of the chiller. There's different things we can do. Once the chilled water system is perfected, or as close as it can get, Phoenix plans to add fountains throughout downtown and other parts of the city. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. This is Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In tribal natural resources, flute making is a time-honored art form among tribal communities across Arizona, but this traditional craft may also be under threat. As KJZZ's Gabriel Pietrazio reports, one invasive species is seen from conservationists as an evil plant, but also a natural resource deeply rooted in cultural practices among the state's original inhabitants. Grammy-nominated musician Aaron White of Diné and Northern U Ancestry always loves making a flute sing. Wow, that's a long... <laughs> <laughs> On this day, White offers tips. That's cool. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. In a master class on crafting traditional native flutes made from river cane at Native Help of Phoenix. So each one of you, when you leave this class today, you're going to smell like river cane. And if you get stopped by the cops, show them what you did. White sells collectible wind instruments. He only worked with timber, walnut, and cedar woods, but that suddenly changed when the COVID pandemic disrupted supply chains. That caused prices of lumber to skyrocket. So his flute-making business pivoted, finding an alternative material rooted along riverbeds in Arizona, Arundo Donax. There are different common names for it. Giant reed, or river cane, says Willie Summers, invasive plant program coordinator for the Arizona Department of Forestry and Fire Management. It is a, a large perennial grass plant that is similar to bamboo. It's also an invasive species, first planted during the 1820s in California for erosion control along the Los Angeles River Basin and even for roofing materials, but later popularized as an ornamental. And a noxious weed here in Arizona. And some of the reasons for that are its impacts on the landscape 
in, and on our desert river systems. Summer says it's found in several riparian areas around central and southern Arizona, including the Gila, Santa Cruz, San Pedro, and Verde rivers. It poses plenty of problems, from growing rapidly, impeding access to waterways, and even a fire hazard when it dries out during the summertime. Two nonprofits have been awarded a combined $250,000 through his department to address Arundo since 2019. The two Tucson-based watershed management group was one of them. This invasive species takes up three to four times more water than our native plants do, which could be affecting the amount of surface flow that we're seeing, as well as the amount of groundwater. Lauren Monheim is the River Run Network Manager. They shipped an estimated 56 tons of chopped down reeds and roots from the Tanky Verde Creek to a green waste facility. Now they're chipping the cane and turning it into mulch. There's not a whole lot of uses for Arundo. Nothing wants to eat it. It's not great for anything. All it really does is privacy because <laughs> it's very, very tall. Jesus Garcia, a conservation research associate at the Sonora, Arizona Desert Museum in Tucson, suggests the opposite. I'm not saying it's not an invasive plant, and I'm not saying it's not causing problems in riparian areas, but we have lost that cultural value because of the change of cultures that we had. Raised in the city of Magdalena de Quino in Sonora, Mexico. I grew up collecting this plant in the rivers because everybody else did. Right now, the ceiling of my house in Mexico is made with Orundo as part of the construction materials, and he's been there for over 50 years. Like Garcia, the Pascua, Yaqui, and Uremi tribal communities, both native to the Sonoran Desert, have relied on this plant to build fences, roofs, cages, chicken coops, baskets, and bridges. Even music. Friends of the Verde River, the Cottonwood-based nonprofit also received state funding. The Yavapai Apache Nation partners with them. That's why we're calling it Arundo Free Oak Creek to kind of build some community around it. Elaine Nichols is the restoration project manager. She says core crews are contracted to remove that plant from over 11,000 acres along the watershed during the wintertime when it's dormant. That's also where White typically treks out twice a week to forage reed he uses for flutes. While nonprofits continue cutting and clearing, White's wife, Marilyn, worries about river cane and the future of flute making in Arizona. If there would be a scarcity, but both nonprofits have shown interest in collaborating with tribal communities and learning how they utilize this invasive species with purpose. Gabriel Pietrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Support for KJZZ's coverage of tribal resources comes from Katina Foundation, dedicated to restoring human and ecological systems. Next, let's hear this story that has led to a new bill at the state legislature. For Arizona special education students in the state, graduating high school isn't always a good thing. High school graduation is an exciting time, but for special education students and their families, it can be complicated. Some Valley families and advocates say schools are pushing students out before they're ready. Now, in response to KJZZ's reporting, a bill to address that has been introduced in the Arizona legislature. The show's Amy Silverman reports. Do you like going to school, Piper? Yes. Yes, and she really loves to tell jokes. Will you tell me a joke? That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Piper Palmer is a senior at Chaparral High School in Scottsdale, but she won't be graduating this year. Palmer, who is 20 and has cerebral palsy, can walk with assistance and make a joke with her communication device. If handed a spoon, 
she can scoop yogurt from a cup into her mouth. She is just now learning to engage with peers, to play a simple game, or ask to hold someone's hand. As a special education student, by law, she can remain in school until her 22nd birthday. And so her mother, Jennifer, was surprised when school personnel informed the family last year that Piper had enough credits to graduate. Suddenly, Piper had gone from taking functional math to Algebra 2. Last year, right before I found out that she was going to move on to, to graduate, I started getting, oh, she's solving long, long division problems, and she's solving two-digit by two-digit multiplication. And I'm questioning them, going, how is that possible when she still can't even count with me? She still doesn't have one-to-one correspondence. Turns out, if you earn enough credits any time before your 22nd birthday, the school can graduate you. It also turns out that Arizona offers an incentive for schools that graduate special education students in four years. Disability rights advocates call it forced graduation, and it's not just happening in the Scottsdale Unified School District. In schools across the valley, families are reportedly caught off guard each spring, told their students are about to graduate. KJZZ interviewed a second family at Chaparral High, as well as several families in the Tempe Unified High School District. Last June, KJCZ first reported that a North High student with Down syndrome would have been forced to graduate if a family friend with political connections hadn't intervened. At the time, a Phoenix Union High School District spokesman said his district does not force students out. George Diaz, a longtime player in Arizona politics, was happy to make things right for his friend. Now he and others want to fix the system for others in similar situations. This week, Republican Senator Ken Bennett introduced legislation at the behest of Carla Phillips Kravikas, the CEO and founder of Inclusive Strategies, a public affairs firm that advocates for students with disabilities. Phillips Kravikas has a daughter with Down syndrome who attends a public high school in Phoenix. But we call this bill the No Surprises Act because the consistent theme, starting with your article, of course, was these parents are caught off guard. And for better or worse, these parents assume that their kids are going to stay till they're 21. So they're totally surprised. I, my, my theory is that no parent should be surprised senior year to find out that their kid is or is not graduating. Phillips Kravikas was taken aback by how many students she found in this situation. I talked to one mom about this forced graduation issue, Shelma West Valley, and I was terrified because as she was telling me her story, it was clear to me that this was like happening like in real time, like it's this year. The problem is so prevalent that the Arizona Center for Disability Law sent out a warning to families about forced graduation. Because school administrators won't admit it's happening, it's difficult to know exactly why students in special education are being pushed through the system. It could be because of staff shortages and funding shortfalls. Another reason? The state issues letter grades to public schools each year. One of the criteria is graduation rates. Schools receive credit for graduating students in four years. This includes special education students even though those students are legally allowed to remain in school for years past that. Again, Carla Phillips Kravikas. School should not be penalized for designing programs for kids with disabilities who are allowed to stay longer. So um, we're hoping to address that this year for sure. School administrators acknowledge that budgets are tight, but one insists that no one is being caught off guard. Brooke Williams is the Director of Special Education for the Scottsdale Unified School District. 
we don't shock them, right? Like the, the parents are part of that conversation every year. And we talk about what math skills are they working on? What math credits are they working on? What are the graduation requirements? What does that look like? So school teams have been talking about that. I can't imagine a scenario where a, a, a family would just be told, surprise, your student's graduating. Liz Coker disagrees. Her son Zane is 17. He has Down syndrome and autism and attends Chaparral High like Piper Palmer. Coker says she was caught off guard when school officials suddenly announced Zane was ready to graduate. I said, so are you saying that he's going to graduate, that he's fulfilled his high school requirements because of time, the passage of time? I said, because he hasn't met the goals, he hasn't had the classes, and he doesn't have the credits. No, not even close. Families worry about what's next for their students when they graduate. The No Surprises Act also addresses issues around the transition from high school to the real world requiring that planning begins early and lays out a foundation for the student's future. Scott Stelsbrook-Williams says her district has made great strides in providing better transition options, including a program at Scottsdale Community College. She acknowledges that none of this is easy. I think that there's so many factors at play here. There are districts that are trying to do right by families and kids. There are families that are worried about their students and what next steps look like after high school. Um, I think there are community pieces at play. So what options do we have for our students after they leave the public education setting, whether it's in four years or five years or six years? Not nearly enough options, parents say. Jennifer Palmer, Piper's mom, has experience as a special education teacher and administrator. She successfully argued to extend Piper's time at Chaparral, but she's still worried about her daughter's future. Palmer has started trying to find an adult day program for Piper when she does eventually leave high school. There's not much out there, she says. You look at these places and I'm like, I, because those places, I'm so thankful that they have them, but people stay there until they die, which is wonderful for those families, (laughs) but There's hardly any openings, and if there is an opening, do I really want my 19-year-old with 55-year-old men in wheelchairs? No. So there's nothing in between. School, Jennifer Palmer says, is the only place Piper can be with her peers, keep learning, and continue to grow. For KJZZ's The Show, I'm Amy Silverman. This is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, a very small cut from every recreational marijuana sale in Arizona gets set aside for what Proposition 207 authors describe as justice reinvestment. The state treasury has put more than $26 million into a namesake fund. Now health officials at the state and county level have started redistributing the money as grants to nonprofits. KJZZ's Matthew Casey reports. A struggling mom once told Tara Sundum that detoxing from opioids is like feeling all of the worst symptoms of a migraine and the flu at max levels. For a baby when they're going through withdrawal, same thing. An adult feeling this sick would choose a quiet and dark place to be. But a neonatal intensive care unit where Sundum worked has incessant bright lights and beeping monitors. So the nurse practitioner started using a closet to settle babies agitated by opioid withdrawals. And when you do the deep breathing, like, and you hold your breath and you do that yoga breath, and baby would feel me relax, and they would relax. 
This led Sundom to open a 12-bed recovery center for babies born substance exposed. Hushabai Nursery in Phoenix has darkened rooms with space for parents to stay overnight. A bassinet makes a shushing sound to recreate the sensation of being in the womb. Number one goal, healthy baby. We want baby to be healthy. Number two, we want baby to be safe. And number three, we want family unification. Which mom and dad can help ensure by completing behavioral health treatment at Hushabai. The nursery offers cutting-edge integrated care, but the model is not yet sustainable. I have a $6 million budget with about $3 million that I have to come up with. $300,000 of marijuana revenue over three years will help out some. State health officials recently gave Hushabai Nursery a justice reinvestment grant and Sundom plans to pursue more. She sees good and bad sides to legalization. And, and now there is um, cannabis use disorder. I mean, that's a diagnosis. The nonprofit called Jobs for Arizona Graduates is also getting a grant of $500,000 of marijuana revenue over five years. Marjorie DeRubis is president and CEO. How great that we're able to actually use it to impact youth and their educational attainment. I mean, that's something that our state desperately needs. Her program takes high schoolers at risk of dropping out and puts them on a path to graduating with a future. We are trying to get new industry to come to Arizona all the time, but we're not giving them the workforce that they need in order for them to stay. Teachers and administrators nominate students to take the program as an elective class. There are guest speakers and field trips to companies like Honeywell. Darubis will take more marijuana revenue because she wants Jobs for Arizona graduates to be in every school. We really try to work with each student, try to figure out what makes them passionate, try to develop their interests. Roughly three years passed between when Arizonans voted to legalize marijuana for adults and when Darubis and others got the first round of grants from state officials. Simon Kasim is with the state health department. Um, the statute wasn't incredibly specific about what is a justice reinvestment program. Kasim says it took time to learn which parts of Arizona were most impacted by marijuana prohibition and to then listen to the needs of the people there. A lot of folks were incarcerated or arrested because of something that is now legal. Um, and so how can we go back to those communities and reinvest in them? What Kasim is in charge of is different from most grant opportunities and a rarity for Arizona. This is going to be sustained funding. As long as there's tax revenue from Prop 207, there are going to be funds available to do these grants. Kasim says there is about $13 million available for the second round of justice reinvestment grants. The hope is money will start going out in the next few months. And the goal is to fund grassroots groups trusted by the community they serve. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now for something a little different from KJZZ's The Show. Why all of our favorite movie and TV characters are antiheroes. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. It is award season, and that means Hollywood and what we're all watching is front and center. The Oscars will be here before we know it, and the Emmys made a big comeback earlier this month after a year of tumult and strikes. And one big theme of the best television and movies to emerge of late is our collective love of the anti-hero, those ever-complicated, often downright awful characters who have dominated much of popular entertainment in recent years. Here is just a taste of the latest crop. Dad fired you, man. No, he did not fire me. He 
He said it was just going to take a little longer. But he said that to be nice. What I think he meant to say was that he wished that mom gave birth to a can opener because at least then it would be useful. It's all about money. You don't need to work. You throw parties. And that's work. That's a lot of work. Trust me. Your wedding took years off my life. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I cannot remember a thing. You go back to whatever nook of the world you call home and you do whatever it is you're good at. Because this is not it. You want to know what I'm good at? I'm good at killing people. So does it matter if we like the characters on these nominated shows? I spoke more about it with Melissa Kirsch, deputy editor of Culture and Lifestyle at The New York Times. She recently wrote about it for The Morning Newsletter. People often hearken back to Tony Soprano as sort Mm -hmm. of like the archetypal antihero. But when I was looking at the Emmy nominees this year, I was struck by how many of the shows centered on these like complicated, dangerous, like apparently, you know, if they were in your actual life, unlikable men. Mm -hmm. Um, Barry was one of the the big shows this year about a hitman shrinking with Jason Siegel about this kind of therapist of questionable ethics. There was this show about a CIA operative with kind of like a dirty past called The Old Man. And, you know, some of the big ensemble shows or the bigger shows that were nominated for Emmys like uh, The White Lotus and Succession, you know, have as their focus these kind of generally unlikable people. Mm-hmm. Um So I can't say why there are so many of them, but I can say that like people definitely like to watch people that they wouldn't necessarily want to go get a beer with or um, maybe wouldn't leave in their house to watch their plants while they were on vacation. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But it does sort of spark this debate that is still ongoing, I think, at least for me, right, that why do you want to watch some show where there's no one to cheer for, really? Like, like who are you supposed to like or even maybe relate to in these casts, you know? But it sounds like you, you're you not quite convinced by that argument. Tell us why. Well, I guess if you look at these characters, I see them all as, like, very human, you know? And I, I don't know that the people in my life are, and in your life too, I'm sure, in all of our lives, we're, we're complex people, we're flawed people, yeah. and you know, what a show can do or what a movie can do is kind of like magnify a certain part of somebody's personality so that because we, somebody who's creating a television show needs to have a villain. So they're going to (laughs) highlight the kind of worst qualities of that person. But like, ideally a, a character who's compelling to watch has like a many faceted personality and that there are things in that person, maybe not the fact that they are a hitman or, <laughs> you know, like a ruthless titan of business. Maybe those aren't the things that you identify with, but that there's something there that there that you see a human being in them and not just a cartoon. Hmm. I think that makes sense. Is there a sense of like, uh, like living vicariously through characters like this in a way too, especially when it comes to sort of the excesses of many of these characters? I think so. I mean, I think we like to watch people like who exist in milieus that we would never get anywhere near. Um, There are many people with many theories about why true crime is so popular. Mm -hmm. But I think one of them is that to be a spectator to our worst nightmares somehow is 
delicious and fascinating to us. And so I, I do, I think that, you know, we, we want to get up close to the raw and ugly parts of human nature and observe them and perhaps see them mirrored in ourselves or see qualities that if we made different decisions in our lives might be magnified in us, mm. like there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I like to get up close to kind of nasty, ethically compromised characters and like learn what makes them tick and sort of find that humanness in them, mm. find in them what I can see in me. Is there a fear, though, Melissa, that 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 sometimes people and maybe because there's just so many of these characters now and they're so popular that like people miss the point, like that you're not necessarily supposed to cheer for this hitman or serial killer or whatever it may be because, you know, they are awful? Yeah, I, I find that interesting. I think that, you know, the argument that you were making, like, you know, well, there's nobody to root for. There's nobody to cheer for. I. Uh, you know, I think people certainly cheer for villains all the time. So they do find somebody to, <laughs> to cheer for. But does somebody have to be likable in order to be compelling? And to me, the answer is no. And I think to, you know, legions of viewers or whatever, the answer is probably no, that we want to watch people even if we don't like them. But I think that there's something interesting about the like somebody's personal preference, though, that they would prefer not to like spend their time with somebody that mm. they don't like, that these characters do feel real to them. And, you know, we do have these kind of parasocial relationships with people on our screens and that we prefer not to have them with people that we find odious. I mean, I think that I had thought, you know, in, in my piece, I had sort of argued that that not everybody's going to be likable, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth watching. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's something to be said for you know, not wanting to spend your time with people real or imagined who you don't like. <laughs> I think that's fair. I definitely feel that way sometimes about these characters. But I wonder, do you think that these anti-heroes are becoming sort of heroes in our culture? Like where a lot of people are, are, do think they're just really cool and like kind of forget the fact that they're doing terrible things? Oh, I hope not. I mean, <laughs> that, that seems like a really dangerous road to go down. Um, however, you know, I, I guess we do, you know, when I think about a show like Succession, where I am kind of rooting for despicable people to prevail, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what that says about me. I hope that in these fantasy worlds where we do want to get up close to, to the uglier sides of human nature, we, you know, we kind of flip the allegiances that we may have in real life for the you know, for the, the kind, respectable people, I hope that we would still maintain a boundary between, <laughs> you know, real life and fantasy. You know, I think that, that it's dangerous if we don't, but I'd, I I hope that's not true. I hope, I hope that people are just, you know, excited to watch really complicated characters that can sometimes get ugly and they're not kind of having, you know, like moral confusion. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we'll leave it there. That is Melissa Kirsch, Deputy Editor of Culture and Lifestyle at The New York Times. She writes the morning newsletter on Saturdays. One of my favorites. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me. In Fronteras news, for the first time, the U.S. Geological Survey is considering potential harms to tribes from mining uranium in northern Arizona. From KJZZ's Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michelle Marisco reports. The agency published a 20-page report this week acknowledging the risks from uranium mining to the cultural resources of the Havasupai tribe. 
It notes the risk specifically from the Pinyon Plain Mine, the newly operating uranium mine south of the National Park, located very near Red Butte, a site considered sacred to tribes. The report notes that specific rituals in the area, from collecting medicinal plants to breathing in the smoke of area vegetation like sage, could introduce new risks. And it recommends that cultural understandings like these become a part of the decision-making process for mining near the Grand Canyon. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation at Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation, and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Jill Ryan, in for Tiara Vian. She'll be back next week. This is KJZZ, your news and information station.